This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And among our most read stories today, billionaire and activist investor Carl Icahn saying Occidental Petroleum's leaders hastily put together its $38 billion deal for Anadarko Petroleum. Our own uh, Eric Schatzker, Bloomberg News, he caught up with Carl Icahn, talked to him about why he's so unhappy with this move. This company has shown that they feel it is, that they are not uh, accountable to anyone. And this has been uh, the facts for quite a while. And they have a board that seems to rubber stamp what, uh, what Holland does, and this is a perfect example of it. But, but this is really an example that I, I think almost sets the stage for a watershed event as far as corporate governance goes. I mean, if you let corporate governance become a travesty more and more and more in this country, which I think it has become to some extent, I think is very dangerous for the future of the country. All right. And that, of course, was the legendary, well-known Carl Icahn, activist investor, following on a scoop from this morning by Mr. Scott DeVoe, our own Bloomberg News uh, activism reporter, where he broke the news that Carl Icahn was indeed slamming Occidental. Scott joins us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Scott, take us us back. First, thank you. Great scoop. what happened here? Why is he so riled up? Okay, so if we back up a few months, you'll recall that uh, Chevron and Occidental were competing uh, to acquire Anadarko. And during that process, what happened was uh, Occidental went out and uh, got some financing from Warren Buffett, $10 billion at an 8% coupon. Uh, so it's quite hot, quite a lot higher than the bond, pay- bond owners are getting. Uh, and then on top of that, he'll get some warrants at the end. So this is all fine and dandy, uh, except for the fact that it's not going towards a shareholder vote um, because it's below the threshold that would require one. So he, A, he's saying this financing was too expensive, and B, he's saying this should have gone to a shareholder vote. And because of that, now he wants to replace four directors on the board. Is he right? It's hard to say. I mean, I'm not one. I'm an impartial journalist, but the. But what do others say? So T. Rowe uh, came out prior to uh, you know Icon trying to replace the directors and said themselves that they thought that uh, an acquisition of this magnitude should go to a shareholder vote. Um, so there is some evidence that there are some big holders in Occidental that support Icon's uh, view of of what went down there. And so not out of character, to say the least, for Carl Icahn to sort of step in and make his uh, opinion known. What's the net effect of it? Where where do you think this goes from here? This is a really complicated process because normally what would happen is you would just call a shareholder vote, um, you know, put your directors up. And then, you know, you would have the typical proxy fight that would go on. But this is a really complicated situation because they've just had their AGM. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be a full year before they have the AGM. Um, and the threshold for calling a shareholder vote is 25% of existing shareholders. So that's a huge hurdle that he would have to get through. So what he's going to do instead is he's going to try to get 20% support to, to set a record date. So the record date would allow certain shareholders to vote on – 
how many uh, the four directors that he's putting forward. Ah. So it's a two-step process. First, he has to get the 20%. Then he has to get 50 1% of the total shareholder base to support the removal and replacement of four directors. It's a long shot. It's a long shot. But I also do wonder about the power of making things public, right? Uh, and Carl Icahn understands he's used Twitter yeah. to do things. And I do wonder about going so public with this. What kind of pressure does this potentially put on Occidental at this point? Yeah, I think it puts a, you know, everybody's, the market didn't move a lot on this news, but I think, you know, putting a magnifying glass on corporate governance issues at a company, right. you know, if it doesn't play out this way, that doesn't mean that it won't play out at the AGM or, you know, if this Anadarko, if these synergies don't play out that the way that they've, they've described them, I mean, this is a really big magnifying glass and something that they have to execute on perfectly or else they're going to be in a bad position come AGM season last, next year. Well, it's interesting, too, and you heard Carl Icahn talk about it in that interview with Eric Schatzky. You can listen to all of that uh, at Bloomberg.com and through the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, but interesting that he is sort of widening the aperture a little bit here. You follow activism every day. You know uh, Icahn's work extremely well. It feels like we're at a moment where these issues are coming to the fore a little mm -hmm. bit for a lot of the reasons mm -hmm. that Carol outlined, using all the different platforms. Does it feel like that to you? You're in it every day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I cover a lot of campaigns at the same time, but I would say that generally, you know, uh, what we're seeing here is the same kind of thing that we generally see play out. You know, the, you have some conversations behind closed doors, then you have some very public shaming followed by some, you know, you know, some counter arguments. There about, is a playbook, you know, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, ca extent. the cadence isn't unusual, but I would say the, the way that people are, uh, um, you know, running these campaigns has started to evolve in a way that's using more social media uh, and, you know, other avenues to reach, uh, you know, a broader audience. It's but, also amazing to think about how long Carl Icahn has been. To, I mean, well, we're talking 30 years. I just thought, too, I was like, remember, corporate raider, now activist yeah. investor. <laughs> you know, I, it, it was funny because he hasn't lost any of his passion for this stuff. No. Right? I mean, you, you heard him today with Eric, and he's yeah. talking about how he thinks that, you know, corporate governance is slipping, and you can just, you know... Any situation where you have a major transaction, you know, that might be perceived to be skirting, you know, any of these, you know, governance rules. I mean, I would be worried that Carl would be looking at your transaction. Just got about 20 seconds here. So the date we should, is there a date we should now be focusing no, on? No. So that's the thing is it's open-ended. Okay. Um, so yeah. he could, this could drag out for quite a long time. All right. Scott DeVoe, really great reporting as always. Deals reporter for Bloomberg. Great scoop this morning, really driving a lot of the conversation on Wall Street. It's about Carl Icahn, yep. Occidental, with a cameo by Warren Buffett. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like made for billions again. Totally. <laughs> Everything relates back to billions. So we are definitely living in interesting times, and you can actually head out on the highway in an electric motorcycle made by Harley-Davidson. In fact, releasing its first production electric motorcycle, getting to experience it firsthand, meaning he took it out for a ride. He also gave us a heads up on it about one year ago. Jake Bright back with us. He's TechCrunch contributor. He's back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to see you. Great to see you guys. So... We'll get to what kind of sounds it makes in just a moment. But you yeah. finally got to take it out for a ride. Yeah, I talked to Harley for a year about these electric vehicle plans. And um, I got to take the bike out on the Formula E course. So not just a ride on, the, on a racetrack, 
um, and took a you know, pre-sales ride on the Livewire. So the, the motorcycle they're introducing, the first electric motorcycle from Harley, is called the Livewire. Great name. Yeah, and it's an all-electric Harley-Davidson. Um, they've redone, you know, they've, they've done it from scratch. It goes 105 miles per hour. It'll go wow. about 146 miles on a charge in the city, around 100 on a highway, and it's really fast and totally digitized. Probably a lot every, of technology in it. Oh right? yeah, everything people probably wouldn't think of from a Harley Davidson, and it has a unique sound. It's it's more like a buzz buzz than a vroom vroom. All right, so <laughs> that's good. Uh, so tell us what it feels like on and 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 what the experience is, especially for people. I'm not one of them who are really familiar with, especially a more classic hog, as it were. Well, it's great. I've been on eMotos for a while now, um, but I got to see the reaction of some of the other testers. And the live wire really is what the e-motorcycle experience is, meaning the biggest difference between an e-motorcycle and a gas bike is this lightning, uninterrupted acceleration. Hmm. Um, there's just this big battery, and there's less mechanical moving parts to put the power to the ground. And you twist and go. And e-motorcycles have huge amounts of torque which is like the, the forceful right. power that moves you forward. And people get on these things. Um, there's no clutch. So there's in no other gears. words. So there's no there's, gears. There's that no that gears. was one of my main right. questions. Right. So there's nothing in the middle. Your whole so left like, side so, goes away from motorcycle riding. So the torque just goes. So you, most people get on these things. You just twist go. the gas and the thing goes zip. And you accelerate probably, in most cases, faster than you've ever accelerated on a motorcycle. Did and you like it? I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. They did a great job with the bike. It handles well. It's really fast. It's totally digitized, and it looks pretty cool, too. So from your estimation, what's the real market for this? And I mean, not necessarily by the numbers, but more understanding the kind of ethos of, of the typical rider. We know from mm-hmm. some of our reporting in Bloomberg Business Week that Harley is at this near sort of existential moment where its core consumer is, shall we say, getting older. It yep. needs to find something to appeal to this younger generation. Is this going to do it? Well, you hit the nail on the head. And I've been talking to these guys for a year, and I've been studying the startup e-motorcycle industry, and I've also been looking at the traditional motorcycle industry. And I'll give you my interpretation of what Harley's doing in three things. The first thing they're trying to do is, as you say, is just try to reboot themselves within the motorcycle industry because the motorcycle industry in the U.S. has been in the doldrums since the recession, 50% decline in new bike sales, and the demographics are getting older. So that's number one. Number two, they're trying to hedge disruption from some of these e-motorcycle startups like Zero, or Eric Buell, who used to work at Harley, is actually forming a startup, um, who are starting to attract to a younger attract a younger generation, more app-based, um, exciting motorcycles. And I think the third thing Harley did, and they're doing, is they're taking a look and saying, "Hey, in all this, how do we reposition ourselves in the 21st century in this transformation?" of global mobility. And that means on-demand stuff. That means getting people anywhere they need to be by all kinds of different means and on-demand by digital apps and things like that. And they're also going to come out with scooters and e-scooters and e-bicycles in the near future. Yeah, A lot of stuff going on. Is it enough to maybe save them? going forward who knows right we don't know yet you know i i don't know because in all all those things i mentioned like especially global mobility there's all kinds of variables nobody knows what is what mobility and transportation is going to look like Like everybody 
from Uber to GM to Ferrari to Harley is trying to sort that out. So it's a big open-ended question. I think the market and revenues will determine that. Wow. Well, really interesting. And uh, I think we're both a little bit jealous that, that you got to ride this. You <laughs> Sounds know. pretty cool. And I love the buzz buzz versus broom broom. Jake Bright, <laughs> contributor at TechCrunch. So much more expert on Africa. We've talked to him about that before. Uh, but this was sort of your uh, this was your white whale getting on this uh, this e-Harley, uh, as it were. The Live Wire, it's called. Follow Jake Bright at Jake R. Bright on Twitter uh, for all of his adventures. Tell me great song yeah uh you know who's not a complicated guy sean donnan he's just know? a smart dude smart dude i follow him on twitter i don't think he's that complicated all right let's find i think out. he's a very straightforward guy so, we can ask so him. so complicated See, are you aren't we all sean it is a great song though <laughs> it is a great song uh he joins us from washington dc our 99.1 studio there in the nation's capital talk and trade which is very complicated. That's why we need someone as straightforward as you to help us uh, explain what's going on. So, Sean, tell us about your uh, remarks today. Terms of trade, the complicated dance between Trump and the markets, especially when it comes to trade. What'd you find? Yeah. So, just first of all, terms of trade is our daily trade newsletter. A little promo here. You can sign up for it. Well on done. You get it in your email box every morning. Uh, what we tackled today was this relationship between Trump and the markets on trade. And if you look at it, there's been this really interesting pattern that's developed over the past 18 months. and not sure it's necessarily healthy. Uh, Trump likes the markets. He likes to be validated by the markets. Uh, when they hit new records, we get lots of tweets. We also... That is when we tend to get some of his more aggressive uh, trade measures. Uh, he feels enabled on trade. He feels validated uh, on trade. That, of course, is the opposite of what the markets look for. If they're, uh, they tend to see things like new tariffs as uh, negative and go down on news of tariffs. So it's kind of this inverse codependency. Uh, I'm not highly trained in psychology. Inverse but, codependency. But I that like it. feels like the relationship that we've got there. And that gets into um, there seems to be a kind of misreading by the two people in this relationship of each other. Um, Trump sees the markets as validation, the markets uh, and their highs as validation of his aggressive trade policies. The markets. Uh, look to Trump for signs that he's going to compromise and reach a deal, and that's where they start to hit their new highs. And at some point, something's got to give. Well, and that is why this is an important story for investors, because what do investors need to be wary of? Well, the biggest question out there right now is how much economic impact have these trade wars really had? And we're starting to learn that. Uh, it's earnings season on Wall Street, and we've had the first week of it last week, and already we're starting to see companies like CSR talk about uh, a reduction in freight volumes as a result of the trade wars. We're going to hear from Caterpillar uh, on Wednesday. We're hearing from, you know, this is the kind of quarterly update that we now uh, get uh, on the impact of the trade wars from corporate America. And meanwhile, we're also 
starting to see uh, the impact slip into uh, show up in, in more and more of the economic data, particularly on manufacturing, which is where things get interesting. We all know about soybeans, uh, or we've all become incredibly conversant in soybeans over the past year as a result of these trade wars. Uh, we know farmers have had it rough over the past year, but we're starting to see signs that things are getting a little tough in the manufacturing sector as a result of the trade wars. In the first two quarters of this year, for example, industrial protection in America actually contracted. That's two consecutive quarters of a contraction in some ways. Uh, that may point to a potential manufacturing recession. That's not good for the economy. Well, and meanwhile, you know, looking beyond the agriculture world, one of the things that makes this so complicated is Huawei. Uh, mm. You know, yes. and everything that both rhetorically and actually in terms of policy, President Trump is doing with that big Chinese tech company and its intricate, to say the least, relationship with a lot of American manufacturers. And now it is revealed by an extensive investigation by The Washington Post, some ties to North Korea. Help us understand how all that plays through. Yeah, um, so it's a good thing I'm not a complicated guy. Uh, the, um, this is, but this is an intensely complicated story. The, I mean, the background to it all is in this town in Washington, there have long been national security concerns about Huawei, its links to the People's Liberation Army, or alleged links, I should say, to the People's Liberation Army, and also uh, the fact that it has gone out there and engaged with uh, folks that the uh, past U.S. administration certainly saw as rogue regimes uh, in North Korea and, and, and Iran. And in particular, there's been a case uh, brought by the Department of Justice against Huawei uh, over its alleged violation of uh, U.S. sanctions on Iran. That is why Huawei's CFO is now sitting under house arrest in Vancouver. She also happens to be the daughter of the company's founder. Uh, and we've all been following that case closely. And secondly, it's also why Huawei in May was, or it's one big reason why Huawei in May was placed on a Commerce Department blacklist, which is what Trump in Osaka, uh, when he met with Xi Jinping, agreed to start to loosen a little bit to allow some sales by U.S. Com companies that Huawei relies on for components. Uh, and now, today, we have this uh, explosive story that Huawei, and this points to a possible violation of U.S. sanctions on North Korea when uh, Huawei uh, years ago was helping build North Korea's 3G network right. uh, there. So, look, it, 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 it's, it's a tangled story. It's all the more tangled by the fact that uh, in the coming hours, in the coming minutes, in fact, uh, we're expecting a whole procession of tech executives at the White House from companies like Intel and Microsoft uh, to talk with the administration of about how they might start resuming sales, well, resuming selling to uh, uh, to Huawei. Well, and what's interesting, you know, Sean, we are obviously focused on the U.S.-Chinese relationship right now, but this also has implications for all Western nations, all Western developed nations who are watching Huawei very carefully. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's there's a big diplomatic war going on internationally between the U.S. and Huawei and China uh, over uh, who gets to. Uh, Put the backbone out there for the next uh, 5G networks. Right. These are the things that are uh, going to allow our fridges to talk to our cell phones, to order uh, groceries without us even knowing it. Um, this is the you know this is the future uh, and. 
Huawei has very good at that 5G, and the U.S. is worried about that, and it's worried about the security implications of that because it thinks if Huawei is setting up networks in uh, Europe and elsewhere in the world, that it could use those to spy not only on on people in those countries but also uh, in the United States. Huawei, of course, uh, says it's just trying to sell some networking gear. It's not at all in the spying game, and it would be completely uh, suicidal as a business for it to to engage in any of that. But that gets it to, you know, this gets to the, the, the kind of the broad suspicions between the U.S. and China over technology and over intentions and over where we're going in the world. Right, yeah. And it does make it that much more, just to keep on the theme, much more complicated than maybe the sort of smiles and handshakes that, you know, you witnessed up close and personal when you were over there in Osaka between President Trump and President Xi Jinping. And also factoring in this latest uh, poster that we referenced, the warming relationship, at least as the President of the United States describes it, mm-hmm. uh, with the leader of North Korea. So complicated, but. We rely on you heavily, Sean Donnan, to make sense of it all. We really appreciate uh, you catching up with us. Sean Donnan, our senior trade reporter, joining us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. All right. You know, so we could write a clever intro for this next segment, but I'm just going to read a tweet by one of the authors of it. For most, Burning Man is about getting naked and getting high. For this MDMA <laughs> activist, it's the most important work week of the year. It's a new story. <laughs> Sarah McBride is one of the authors of it. She's a venture capital reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. And Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, I want to start with you. How do you set up a story like this? Because it is... I think you just did. I, it's quite a tale. <laughs> well it done. is quite a tale. Yeah, no. Uh, so we... Uh, Sarah just has a knack for like stories that I just find fascinating. This is one of them. Um, and she spent some time in Burning Man last year because she had found this character who I think is really an interesting person. MDMA is this drug that uh, has been around for a long time. Many people know it by other names, whether Molly, if you're sort of maybe on the younger side, ecstasy, if you're on the older side. And it actually is starting to have some a, a real following in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, but really in Silicon Valley. And that was sort of um, where what the story is about, because it, to, to bolster a story like this, you need money for research. And... Uh, Sarah and Kristen Brown found the guy who's in charge of basically trying to get more money. So who who is he, Sarah? Well, he's this really fascinating guy called Rick Doblin, and he has been working on this for his whole career, starting in his 20s. He took, you know, a few extra years to graduate from college. But at that time, he went out to Esalen before MDMA was even illegal he realized it had huge benefits for people with PTSD. So basically, since the 80s, he has just been working on this and other psychedelics. He's gotten to the point where the FDA is overseeing clinical trials, phase three clinical trials, That's all bankrolled by him. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty huge. And uh, he's a character, and he's just stuck with it. He just told me... He's just kept trying, kept trying, kept trying over decades, and now the end is in sight where these uh, tests, these phase three tests are 
well underway and we could be seeing prescribed MDMA in the next year or two. But he needs a bunch of money. He needs millions and millions of dollars. It costs, at the time we went to Burning Man, he thought it was going to cost $28 million for these phase three trials. Now it's up over 30 because the FDA just added this extra step, but uh, he's raised it. Um, one dollar at a time, right. including at Burning Man. <laughs> and yeah, who's he, he was trying to get at, at well, Burning Man? So any, he's realized that tech workers are a great source for this kind of cash because a, a lot of them are really open to trying new things, including psychedelics, and b, a lot of them are super, super rich. Just this year's IPOs have helped land him several million more dollars. So um, the lead of our story is he was biking around Burning Man looking for Sergey Brin, which sounds totally crazy, but he'd met Sergey Brin before, like had this conversation with him and felt like maybe he could make some inroads. He doesn't know if Sergey will ever give him money for this, but he just thinks, yeah, that's a good guy to well, know. And maybe well, and some well, of his well, friends will give me money. Well, let's just talk about the list of people who have given him money, right? Yeah. Some early Facebook employees, mm-hmm. a co-founder of Groupon, a former senior Twitter executive, yep. uh, a partner at Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. I mean, he's already rounded up some pretty impressive investors. Yeah, absolutely. And the way he gets to a lot of them is... He goes to Burning Man. He goes around to all the camps where these rich uh, tech founders like to stay. He schmoozes with them. He talks to them about his work. They're all really interested. And then when he gets back from Burning Man, he just hits them up for a donation. And they remember him as the cool guy working on the interesting project. And they pony up. Well, and it's an interesting moment broadly because for anybody who's read Michael Pollan's uh, recent book i'm actually right in the middle of it how to change your mind it does feel like we're at this yeah interesting so moment, i think right, there's Joel? this zeitgeist thing and that was one of the things that we we started talking with sarah about was that the the perception of these drugs has really changed i mean silicon valley is always on the forefront of everything but there <laughs> is this uh culture that believes that you can change the way you think right and do it um in a responsible way and that's sort of what what he's a part of and so what is the the science behind um the the research uh, so far sarah only got about 40 well, seconds here sir sure there's this thinking that you can kind of reset your brain while you're on mdma as long as you do it with a lot of therapy and he really believes it's getting mainstreamed now he was just invited to give a talk at ted which you know he'd been trying to do for years and finally this year he was invited onto the main stage and got millions of dollars after that people who you'd think would not be into this are now starting to think maybe there is something here maybe we should look at these psychedelics so it's that's a, I, I think this will be a thing that in a couple years we're going to look back on and yeah. he will be the reason why it's gone it's gone it's going mainstream already he's part of the reason why and that's in phase three is just remarkable Shoot. yeah it's a big moment for sure great tale uh worth picking up magazine later this week or read it now on bloomberg.com or the bloomberg terminal joel weber editor of bloomberg business week thank you and sarah mcbride one of the authors of this story bc reporter out in san francisco she joined us from our 960 studio you're listening to bloomberg business week i'm driving in my car I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the 
questions that drive us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close here to help us answer the question of whether or not stocks have peaked uh, and take a look at earnings and also talk about the name she calls the GE of tech. Hillary Kramer is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at A&G Capital Research, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you, Carol. Pleasure to be here. So where are we? I mean, we're just, you know, we've gotten some earnings. We've got a lot more, some big tech we're going to get through this week, some other big names. But where are we in this market? market and earnings environment. We should see the market continue to to climb the wall of worry and rise. As a matter of fact, I- I could certainly see S&P 500 being up another 5% between now and year end. And you think, gee, why? How much higher can we go? What We're up can be 19% squeezed out of? right now. That, that's right. I mean, the Dow is up 16.4% and NASDAQ is up 22.8% year to date. Okay, so why can we go higher? It's the Fed. The Fed's job was never supposed to be dictating and ruling and indicating and influencing the stock market. But and that's yet, what they it's, are. That's what it's morphed into. So that's what we have. And on the last Wednesday of July, we will have the Federal Reserve cut rates. Now, will they cut a quarter point, 50 points? The market's pricing that in, but that's going to keep money flying around, sloshing around. And then what's it going to do? I mean, my job is to give people stocks, really good stocks that they can make money from. So if we see... You know, if we see a cut and we see people not able to get any kind of yield, you know, any kind of return from their treasuries, they're going to look for proxies. So, like lately for us, we've been looking for those companies that you can get a solid three and a half to four percent and know it's good as gold. Can I share some of those names Please. with you? Okay, one of my favorites is UFS Dome Tar. Uh, Dome Tar, 1848. This company started with the wooden railroad lines. 170 years later, the company UFS has morphed itself into diapers from Naturally. diapers. Yeah, yes. And uh, it depends. Adult. Adult. <laughs> it's really adult diapers. It's adult diapers, but they're going to, I mean, abs- the absorbency market, look, you just have to look at demographics. Right. We really have to, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about, which is probably why the stock is so undervalued. It's Based kind of like South buying. Carolina, it's mm-hmm. up about 16.5% this year. And you're talking about uh, a dividend yield of about 4.5%. Four, exactly. Wow. Exactly. And they didn't even start their dividend until 2010, uh, huh. just to show confidence after their session. Another one is Olin that I really am very impressed with. 1892 Blasting Powder. Uh, this is a company, Winchester, Winchester Ammunition, still around to this day. But it's also, uh, chemicals for paints, uh, camping gear, bleaches. Olin will give you 3.7%. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I look for really clean balance sheets. It's the mid, is it the mid-cap space you I really, really love? love that. It, this is about a $3.4 billion market <sighs> right. cap. Right. I, I really like that $1 to $10 billion market cap. Isn't it ironic, though, years ago, you know, that would have been like a large cap. Omega, and now yeah. you might say, is that a small cap? Right. <laughs> but I, and then, of course, you have companies like Boeing. Yeah, also, talk to us about Boeing, because we were talking a lot about this name last mm-hmm. week, coming out, the $5 billion charge, stock goes up. Is Everybody's that like, because <laughs> it's bottomed? Like, what are, we, what are you seeing there? 
Boeing will continue to rise. They're really at the, I mean, even, even every time it seems like, even like a day like today, it seems like, you know, they take four or five uh, steps forward, then suddenly they take six back. But it's down about a percent today. Oh, now it's, oh, in reality, uh, Boeing is going to climb right back to where it is. I think that we're going to find itself, uh, you know, back there. Um, in a, on a 52-week, on a, the high of that we saw before all of this uh, 737 MAX issues came out. And again, I sat here a few months ago and I said, it's not inherent to the actual plane. It has to do with software and training. That is the most simplified version in the world. But but fundamentally, that's where it is. So as long as these planes don't have to be disassembled and put in the desert in western Texas, you know, we're, we're in good shape. And then you even have some banks. Look, as long as money is really uh, cheap, I mean, I know everyone talks about the margins on money and the yield curve. But there's a company, First Hawaiian, FHB. Take a look at that dividend yield. First Hawaiian is... 4%. Dis- <laughs> clean, clean balance sheet, uh, and uh, the Hawaiian economy continues uh, for a number of reasons so what, to, to I, thrive. Gonna, I know, I'm interrupting you. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but what's your screening process? Because these are definitely not household names. And I think about, you know, we tend to talk a lot about some of the large caps. Dave Wilson, God bless his soul, like brings in a lot of those small caps. He's, too. he's, still, he's still around. He's <laughs> going to be here in a few minutes. I was going to say. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not right mean? off Dave Wilson yet. <laughs> No, but I Look, mean, like, uh, well, we, it's, it's the places that I we don't normally go. So how do you, you know, Hillary, what do you screen for to find these names? We screen on the value side, which are the stocks I'm talking about right now. Is that better? Bless his heart. <laughs> We're really talking about value right now. And to us, you can have kind of a hybrid of value that has growth in it at the same time. So we look for companies. We want that really, really clean balance sheet because we really feel that one day rates will rise. One day it might not be in our lifetime. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it might be while we're colonizing space or something. But um, we we look for that. We we really do. We look for best of breed within its sector. Uh, from a macro perspective, we actually do trend analysis. We're one of the few true um, top-down, bottom-up yeah. approaches. And then, like, for example, when we do growth, you know, on the growth side, we actually do look at the technicals and we have a technical screen and uh, our so, own algorithm. There you go. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about Microsoft because that's the aforementioned GE of tech. You're not as bullish maybe as others are. I, look... Microsoft, Nardelli has turned that company around. It, Microsoft is phenomenal. MSFT, Mr. Softy, has done miracles for all of our portfolios, whether we know it or not, you know, just being in an index. But it's really starting to max out. The beauty of it is this cloud computing mega, you know, kind of mega 800-pound gorilla that they've created, you know, in, in cloud computing. Right. that They've been able to morph into that. But at the same time, you know, everyone has its peak. I'm really surprised Microsoft had, you know, a a third life here. But isn't it because everyone is going to be needing to store data? And, you know, we've done stories in the magazine that, you know, this is a huge market. Everybody needs data storage. Right. But data storage will become the... We all think that the cloud is up there in the sky, right? We all look up, you know, and, and we say, oh, my God, our stuff is up there in the cloud. Really, it's in, like, Nevada in a big, huge <laughs> warehouse that's really hot, taking up a lot of electricity. And what's going to happen is, of course, uh, the need for space and um, continues to shrink. 
uh, at an exponential at an exponential level. So therefore, yeah. it becomes commoditized, and it's going to impact. Going to go there. It's going to um, impact um, Amazon also. Let's wait and see on Thursday what Amazon has to say. We will. Hillary Kramer, nice to have you back with us, President and CIO of A and G Capital Research. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.